Obscenity. According to the U.S. Supreme Court, the First Amendment's protection of free speech does not apply to obscene speech. Therefore, both the federal government and the states have tried to prohibit or otherwise restrict obscene speech, in particular the form that is now called pornography. As of 2019, pornography, except for child pornography, is in practice free of governmental restrictions in the United States, though pornography about extreme sexual practices is occasionally prosecuted. The change in the 20th century, from total prohibition in 1900 to near total tolerance in 2000, reflects a series of court cases involving the definition of obscenity. The U.S. Supreme Court has found that most pornography is not obscene, a result of changing definitions of both obscenity and pornography. The legal tolerance also reflects changed social attitudes, one reason there are so few prosecutions for pornography is that juries will not convict. In Rosen v. United States, 1896, the Supreme Court adopted the same obscenity standard as had been articulated in a famous British case, Regina v. Hicklin, 1868. The Hicklin test defined material as obscene if it tended to deprave or corrupt those whose minds are open to such immoral influences, and into whose hands a publication of this sort may fall. In the early 20th century, literary works including An American Tragedy, Theodore Dreiser, 1925, and Lady Chatterley's Lover, D. H. Lawrence, 1928, were banned for obscenity. In the federal district court case United States v. One book called Ulysses, 1933, Judge John M. Woolsey established a new standard to evaluate James Joyce's novel Ulysses, 1922, stating that works must be considered in their entirety, rather than declared obscene on the basis of an individual part of the work. The Supreme Court ruled in Roth v. United States, 1957, that the First Amendment did not protect obscenity. It also ruled that the Hicklin test was inappropriate. Instead, the Roth test for obscenity was whether to the average person, applying contemporary community standards, the dominant theme of the material, taken as a whole, appeals to the prurient interest. This definition proved hard to apply, however, and in the following decade, members of the court often reviewed films individually in a court-building screening room to determine if they should be considered obscene. Justice Potter Stewart, in Jacobellis v. Ohio, 1964, famously said that, although he could not precisely define pornography, I know it when I see it. The Roth test was expanded when the court decided Miller v. California, 1973. Under the Miller test, a work is obscene if a average person, applying contemporary community standards would find the work, as a whole, appeals to the prurient interest, b, the work depicts or describes, in a patently offensive way, sexual conduct specifically defined by the applicable state law, and c, the work, taken as a whole, lacks serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value. Note that community standards, not national standards, are applied whether the material appeals to the prurient interest, leaving the question of obscenity to local authorities. Child pornography is not subject to the Miller test, as the Supreme Court decided in New York v. Ferber, 1982, and Osborne v. Ohio, 1990, ruling that the government's interest in protecting children from abuse was paramount. Personal possession of obscene material in the home may not be prohibited by law. In Stanley v. Georgia, 1969, the court ruled that if the First Amendment means anything, it means that a state has no business telling a man, sitting in his own house, what books he may read or what films he may watch. However, it is constitutionally permissible for the government to prevent the mailing or sale of obscene items, though they may be viewed only in private. Ashcroft v. Free Speech Coalition, 2002, further upheld these rights by invalidating the Child Pornography Prevention Act of 1996, holding that, because the act prohibit child pornography that does not depict an actual child, simulated child pornography, it was overly broad and unconstitutional under the First Amendment and 
First Amendment freedoms are most in danger when the government seeks to control thought or to justify its laws for that impermissible end. The right to think is the beginning of freedom, and speech must be protected from the government because speech is the beginning of thought. In United States v. Williams, 2008, the court upheld the PROTECT Act of 2003, ruling that prohibiting offers to provide and requests to obtain child pornography did not violate the First Amendment, even if a person charged under the Act did not possess child pornography. Personal possession of obscene material in the home may not be prohibited by law. In Stanley v. Georgia, 1969, the court ruled that if the First Amendment means anything, it means that a state has no business telling a man, sitting in his own house, what books he may read or what films he may watch. However, it is constitutionally permissible for the government to prevent the mailing or sale of obscene items, though they may be viewed only in private. Ashcroft v. Free Speech Coalition, 2002, further upheld these rights by invalidating the Child Pornography Prevention Act of 1996, holding that, because the act prohibit child pornography that does not depict an actual child, simulated child pornography, it was overly broad and unconstitutional under the First Amendment and First Amendment freedoms are most in danger when the government seeks to control thought or to justify its laws for that impermissible end. The right to think is the beginning of freedom, and speech must be protected from the government because speech is the beginning of thought. In United States v. Williams, 2008, the court upheld the PROTECT Act of 2003, ruling that prohibiting offers to provide and requests to obtain child pornography did not violate the First Amendment, even if a person charged under the Act did not possess child pornography. Memoirs of Convicted Criminals In some states, there are Son of Sam laws prohibiting convicted criminals from publishing memoirs for profit. These laws were a response to offers to David Berkowitz to write memoirs about the murders he committed. The Supreme Court struck down a law of this type in New York as a violation of the First Amendment in the case Simon & Schuster v. Crime Victims Board, 1991. That statute did not prohibit publication of a memoir by a convicted criminal. Instead, it provided that all profits from the book were to be put in escrow for a time. The interest from the escrow account was used to fund the New York State Crime Victims Board, an organization that pays the medical and related bills of victims of crime. Similar laws in other states remain unchallenged. Defamation. American tort liability for defamatory speech or publications traces its origins to English common law. For the first 200 years of American jurisprudence, the basic substance of defamation law continued to resemble that existing in England at the time of the Revolution. An 1898 American legal textbook on defamation provides definitions of libel and slander nearly identical to those given by William Blackstone and Edward Coke. An action of slander required the following. 1. Actionable words, such as those imputing the injured party, is guilty of some offense, suffers from a contagious disease or psychological disorder, is unfit for public office because of moral failings or an inability to discharge his or her duties, or lacks integrity in profession, trade or business. 2. That the charge must be false. 3. That the charge must be articulated to a third person, verbally or in writing. 4. That the words are not subject to legal protection, such as those uttered in Congress, and 5. That the charge must be motivated by malice. An action of libel required the same five general points as slander, except that it specifically involved the publication of defamatory statements. For certain criminal charges of libel, such as seditious libel, the truth or falsity of the statements was immaterial, as such laws were intended to maintain public support of the government and true statements could damage this support even more than false ones. Instead, Libel placed specific emphasis on the result of the publication. Libelous publications tended to degrade and injure another person or bring him into contempt, hatred or ridicule. 
Concerns that defamation under common law might be incompatible with the new Republican form of government caused early American courts to struggle between William Blackstone's argument that the punishment of dangerous or offensive writings, necessary for the preservation of peace and good order, of government and religion, the only solid foundations of civil liberty and the argument that the need for a free press guaranteed by the Constitution outweighed the fear of what might be written. Consequently, very few changes were made in the first two centuries after the ratification of the First Amendment. The Supreme Court's ruling in New York Times Company v. Sullivan, 1964, fundamentally changed American defamation law. The case redefined the type of malice needed to sustain a libel case. Common law malice consisted of ill will or wickedness. Now, public officials seeking to sustain a civil action against a tortfeasor needed to prove by clear and convincing evidence that there was actual malice. The case involved an advertisement published in the New York Times indicating that officials in Montgomery, Alabama had acted violently in suppressing the protests of African Americans during the civil rights movement. The Montgomery Police Commissioner, Albie Sullivan, sued the Times for libel, saying the advertisement damaged his reputation. The Supreme Court unanimously reversed the $500,000 judgment against the Times. Justice Brennan suggested that public officials may sue for libel only if the statements in question were published with actual malice, knowledge that it was false or with reckless disregard of whether it was false or not. In sum, the court held that the First Amendment protects the publication of all statements, even false ones, about the conduct of public officials except when statements are made with actual malice, with knowledge that they are false or in reckless disregard of their truth or falsity. While actual malice standard applies to public officials and public figures, in Philadelphia newspapers v. Heps, 1988, the court found that, with regard to private individuals, the First Amendment does not necessarily force any change in at least some features of the common law landscape. In Dunn and Bradstreet Incorporated v. Green Moss Builders Incorporated, 1985, the court ruled that actual malice need not be shown in cases involving private individuals, holding that in light of the reduced constitutional value of speech involving no matters of public concern, the state interest adequately supports awards of presumed and punitive damages, even absent a showing of actual malice. In Gertz v. Robert Welch Incorporated, 1974, the court ruled that a private individual had to prove malice only to be awarded punitive damages, not actual damages. In Hustler Magazine v. Falwell, 1988, the court extended the actual malice standard to intentional infliction of emotional distress in a ruling which protected parody, in this case a fake advertisement in Hustler suggesting that evangelist Jerry Falwell's first sexual experience had been with his mother in an outhouse. Since Falwell was a public figure, the court ruled that importance of the free flow of ideas and opinions on matters of public interest and concern was the paramount concern, and reversed the judgment Falwell had won against Hustler for emotional distress. In Milkovich v. Lorraine Journal Company, 1990, the court ruled that the First Amendment offers no wholesale exception to defamation law for statements labeled opinion, but instead that a statement must be provably false, falsifiable, before it can be the subject of a libel suit. Nonetheless, it has been argued that Milkovich and other cases effectively provide for an opinion privilege. Private action. Despite the common misconception that the First Amendment prohibits anyone from limiting free speech, the text of the amendment prohibits only the federal government, the states and local governments from doing so. State constitutions provide free speech protection similar to those of the U.S. Constitution. In a few states, such as California, a state constitution has been interpreted as providing more comprehensive protections than the First Amendment. The Supreme Court has permitted states to extend such enhanced protections, most notably in Pruneyard Shopping Center v. Robbins. In that case, 
the court unanimously ruled that while the First Amendment may allow private property owners to prohibit trespass by political speakers and petition gatherers, California was permitted to restrict property owners whose property is equivalent to a traditional public forum, often shopping malls and grocery stores, from enforcing their private property rights to exclude such individuals. However, the court did maintain that shopping centers could impose reasonable restrictions on expressive activity. Subsequently New Jersey, Colorado, Massachusetts and Puerto Rico courts have adopted the doctrine. California's courts have repeatedly reaffirmed it. The text of this podcast is sourced from the Wikipedia Foundation under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The written text has been altered for voice presentation. To view the modified and original text versions visit thelegalpages.com. The content of this podcast is presented for informational purposes only and is not intended to be legal or professional advice. The Wikipedia Foundation is not affiliated with this podcast.